Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. There's a standard story we tell about the development of judicial review in the United States, and it goes something like this. There's this case called Marbury v. Madison in 1803, where the Chief Justice declares that the Supreme Court has the power to review the constitutionality of laws that are passed by Congress, and they get a say whether the law is unconstitutional or not, and if it's unconstitutional, then they refuse to enforce it. That story isn't wrong so much as it's incomplete. To have a more complete picture, we need to consider the background and the history and the argument that Chief Justice Marshall put forward to justify the exercise of judicial review in that case. Some background. The election of 1800 was a battle. It was a bitter contest between John Adams of the Federalist Party and Thomas Jefferson of the Democratic-Republicans. The stuff newspapers wrote back then was as nasty as anything we see in our political campaigns today. Each side genuinely thought the future of the Republic was imperiled by that election. According to one side, John Adams was a monarchist. He cared little for civil liberties. He wanted to centralize power and take the U.S. into an immoral war with France. According to the other side, Thomas Jefferson was an anti-Christian bigot, a religious skeptic, and a free thinker who supported the violent atrocities of the French Revolution, and who wanted to import the bloodshed to America. To add an element of uncertainty to an already nasty partisan campaign, Thomas Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate Aaron Burr end up tied in the Electoral College. According to Article 2 of the Constitution, the House of Representatives gets to choose in the event of a tie, and each state delegation casts only one vote. So that left a lot of room for politics in the House vote that year, and it took 36 ballots before Jefferson emerged with a majority. In the congressional elections that year, the Democratic-Republicans routed the Federalists and gained a solid majority in the House. And so after the election, but before Thomas Jefferson was sworn into office and before the new representatives took their seats, President John Adams and the Federalists in Congress decided to squeeze in whatever partisan advantage they could through the process of judicial appointments. Congress passes this act called the Judiciary Act of 1801, which is better known as the Midnight Judges Act. It reduces the number of justices on the Supreme Court from six to five, effective after the next Supreme Court vacancy. So in other words, when Jefferson's president and somebody steps down from the court, Jefferson's administration won't get to appoint a new justice. It creates three new circuit courts, 16 new judgeships, and the act passes 19 days before the end of Adams' administration. So he and the Federalists get to work filling judicial vacancies with Federalist judges before Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans can take over. And around the same time, Congress also passes the Organic Act of the District of Columbia that gives the president the authority to appoint individuals as justices of the peace in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. doesn't really have a government in place at the time, so the justices of the peace become the de facto government of that region. So it's an important act, and these are important posts. The act passes on February 27th. On March 3rd, the day before Thomas Jefferson's inauguration, John Adams then nominates and the Senate confirms 42 mainly Federalists to fill these positions, including William Marbury, who's a wealthy Federalist stalwart who had actively campaigned for Adams. And this is where things get interesting. The commissions for these various appointments were written out, signed by President John Adams, and then sealed by Secretary of State John Marshall. John Marshall, at the time, happened to also be the Chief Justice of the United States. 
John Adams had appointed John Marshall to serve as Chief Justice, replacing Oliver Ellsworth just a couple of months before, but he remained Secretary of State until the end of Adams' administration. So John Marshall, who's both Secretary of State and Chief Justice, seals these commissions and he gives them to his brother, James Marshall, to deliver them. But James can't deliver all of these in a day. These are last-minute appointments. And when Thomas Jefferson takes over, he appoints his friend James Madison to replace John Marshall as Secretary of State, and he directs the acting Secretary of State, Levi Lincoln, and then later James Madison, when he fills the role, not to deliver the remaining commissions. One of those commissions belongs to William Marbury. Marbury wants his commission. Madison refuses to give it to him. So Marbury sues Madison and asks the Supreme Court to force Madison to deliver the commission. The Chief Justice hearing the case is... You guessed it, John Marshall, the same guy who originally sealed the commission and asked his brother to deliver it. The case was placed on the docket for the 1802 term, but Congress then passed a law in 1802 that restored the number of justices to six, so then the Democratic-Republicans could fill any vacancy that arose, and also said that the Supreme Court's annual term would commence in February, which meant that the court wouldn't hear the case until February 1803, So Congress effectively canceled the Supreme Court's 1802 term, and it was a clear shot across the bow of Chief Justice John Marshall. When the Supreme Court does take up the case in February 1803, the first question is this. Does Marbury have a legal right to this commission? The second question, what authority did the Supreme Court have to force Madison to deliver this commission? Marbury argued that he did, in fact, have a legal right to the commission. He argued that the Supreme Court had the authority to give it to him under Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Section 13 says that the Supreme Court will, quote, have power to issue writs of mandamus. Mandamus is a Latin word that means we command, and the writ of mandamus is a legal order from a court commanding some government official to do some act that's required of them by law. So Marbury's saying, they're required by law to give me this commission. You have the authority, according to the Judiciary Act, to issue writs of mandamus. Issue a writ of mandamus to Madison, telling him to give me the commission. So what should John Marshall do here? The court's not a strong institution yet. It's certainly not in a strong political position. Congress just canceled the court's last term. Marshall risks looking political rather than judicial by getting involved in this, and Madison probably would refuse to deliver the commission, even if Marshall ordered him to do so. And so it's in this context that the decision of Marbury versus Madison is remembered as a case study in brilliant judicial maneuvering by Marshall over Jefferson. Whether or not that's true, Marshall's decision simultaneously does three important things. First, it holds that Marbury does have a legal right to the commission and that Jefferson failed in his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So it's a public rebuke of the president. Second, it holds that Marbury has a right to seek a remedy in the federal courts. But third, that the proper remedy is not to be found in a writ of mandamus issued by the Supreme Court. The reason Marshall thinks the writ of mandamus is not the proper remedy is because he thinks it would amount to an exercise of original jurisdiction counter to Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. Article 3 says that the Supreme Court will have original jurisdiction in cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be a party. For all other cases, the Supreme Court has appellate jurisdiction, under whatever regulations and with whatever exceptions as Congress makes. So basically, if the case involved a foreign government official or a state, the Supreme Court would have original jurisdiction, they would be the first court to hear the case, and it wouldn't be on appeal. The court could then hear all other cases only on appeal and only as Congress provides foreign law. So according to Marshall's reading of Article 3, the Supreme Court has a really limited number of cases in which they have the authority to hear the case first. 
The rest have to come on appeal. And since Marbury took his suit against Madison straight to the Supreme Court, the court said, sorry, we can't help you. We don't have jurisdiction. But that also meant by implication that Congress didn't have the authority to give the Supreme Court original jurisdiction for cases involving writs of mandamus, and that Section 13 of the Judiciary Act was therefore unconstitutional. Here are some excerpts from Marshall's opinion. On Section 13 of the Judiciary Act, he writes, The authority, therefore, given to the Supreme Court by the Act establishing the judicial courts of the United States to issue writs of mandamus to public officers appears not to be warranted by the Constitution. On judicial review, then, he writes, The question whether an act repugnant to the Constitution can become the law of the land is a question deeply interesting to the United States, but happily not of an intricacy proportioned to its interest. It seems only necessary to recognize certain principles, supposed to have been long and well established to decide it. The principles are these. First, we have a government of limited powers. As he writes, the powers of the legislature are defined and limited, and that those powers may not be mistaken or forgotten, the Constitution is written. Second, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. As Marshall says in the opinion, the Constitution is either superior, paramount law, unchangeable by ordinary means, or it's on a level with ordinary legislative acts, and like other acts, it's alterable when the legislature shall please to alter it. Finally, if a law conflicts with the Constitution, the Supreme Court should be faithful to the Constitution. And this is the most famous part of his opinion in Marbury v. Madison. Marshall says, It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must of necessity expound and interpret that rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the courts must decide the operation of each. So if a law be in opposition to the Constitution, if both the law and the Constitution apply to a particular case, so that the court must either decide the case conformably to the law disregarding the Constitution, or conformably to the Constitution disregarding the law, the court must determine which of these conflicting rules governs the case. This is of the very essence of judicial duty. If, then, the courts are to regard the Constitution, and the Constitution is superior to any act of the legislature, the Constitution, and not such ordinary act, must govern the case to which they both apply. Now, notice what the court did not decide in Marbury v. Madison. A professor named Robert Lowry Clinton noted in an article for the American Journal of Political Science back in the early 90s that John Marshall, quote, did not, in Marbury or on any other occasion, proclaim an exclusive power in the judiciary to invalidate laws, nor that the court was ultimate arbiter of constitutional questions. As Clinton noted, Marbury's judicial review holding was in fact quite narrow, justifying at most the court's power to nullify national law in cases bearing directly upon the judicial functions. This limited kind of judicial review, where the judges of necessity have to decide what the Constitution allows them to do while they carry out their own assigned duties, is consistent with the same basic idea of constitutional fidelity required of members of Congress and the President. Everyone swears an oath to the Constitution, and everyone has to form judgments about what the Constitution requires when they're performing their duties under the Constitution. For members of Congress, this might mean forming a judgment about, say, how the Constitution divides war powers between the legislature and the executive, or about what constitutes impeachable offenses. For the president, this might mean forming a judgment about the constitutionality of certain kinds of executive orders, or about refusing to sign a law that has been passed by Congress because, in the president's judgment, it's unconstitutional. For a judge on the Supreme Court, this means refusing to render a judgment that is outside of the scope of their assigned jurisdiction. So understood, Marbury is important, but still pretty limited. 
But the doctrine of judicial review and the way that we remember the holding in Marbury versus Madison have grown to represent something more than the notion that the Supreme Court justices are bound by the Constitution just like everyone else. Since the latter half of the 20th century, we have grown accustomed to thinking about the court as the supreme and final interpreter of the meaning of the Constitution, not just as it relates to the judiciary, but as it relates to the other two branches of government and even the political judgments of citizens. This latter understanding is what scholars have come to call judicial supremacy. And so next time, we'll look at the rise of judicial supremacy and in constitutional interpretation, not only in the United States, but around the world.